0: This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Menz. Bail is refused. You're out of order! If it pleases the court. To adopt this
1: affirmation, please say the words, I do.
0: I do. Nothing further from this. Point. Given the serious nature of this offence, this case is dismissed.
2: Welcome to The Wigs, I'm Jim Minns. This week we're delighted to have as a guest, David Buchanan SC. David is a quiet and unassuming legend of the criminal law in New South Wales. Admitted to legal practice in 1975 and then called to the bar in 1977. In the decades between then and now, he has not wearied nor lost his zeal and professional dedication. He was appointed senior counsel in 1997 and has almost retired after a long career of practicing as both a prosecutor and defence counsel in New South Wales. He has been a champion of social justice, particularly in his work for and in the gay and lesbian community and in response to the HIV-AIDS epidemic in both Australia and Overseas. In this interview with Whig Felicity Graham, David shares his personal insights, reflects on his journey through the law, the influences on him, some of his key cases, and his tips for surviving and thriving as a criminal law practitioner today.
0: David Buchanan, so good to be with you.
2: Good to be with you too, Felicity.
0: Thanks for coming in My and pleasure. having a chat. Um, I gather you're semi-retired now. That's what I'm
1: telling people <laughs> now. Um, I, I was saying I was retired, but this uh, post-conviction inquiry... Um, is taking up an increasing amount of my daily time. Yeah. Uh, um, but which is, it's, it's all well and good. It's, it's interesting stuff. It was a case I did myself uh, into a, into a conviction arising from a case I did myself in 1980, 1981. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, there's six accused into whose convictions the inquiry's been ordered. I act for three of them. We're calling them the petitioners because <laughs> <Okay. laughs> uh, they applied numerous times uh, for the inquiry to be ordered and now it finally has been and we don't have a right to present evidence. It's, uh, there's counsel assisting the judge appointed to conduct the inquiry but we have a right to make submissions so we've made a submission, detailed submissions as to what we think the scope of the inquiry should be and the issue should be and we're busily collecting evidence to hand over to counsel assisting, saying here yeah, we think you should present this, so it's 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 the type of um, tribunal that you'd be familiar with in a coronial inquest, yes. For example, or or people ICA-
0: might be familiar with the most recent Kathleen Folby conviction inquiry, exactly. Yes, exactly. it's the same type yeah. of um, beast. Exactly. So, look, I want to get into the details of that case. Um, I think people might be familiar with the term the Croatian Six, which relates to these series of bomb plots in Sydney back in the late 70s. But let's just go even further back in time. Um, You were admitted in 1975 as a lawyer. Why did you become a lawyer?
1: Um, Originally, I was going to become a diplomat. I lived in Canberra and I used to do... Um, worked during the school holidays in the Department of Foreign Affairs um, and uh, it was a r- absolutely orthodox recognised path to get a law degree and then apply to join what was then called the Diplomatic Corps. Mm. Um, but in my final year at law school at ANU, um, in, of all things, practice and procedure, a lecture in practice procedure, it suddenly dawned on me that um, I could do this. And I found that sort of problem solving interesting, and it appealed to my um, sort of anal obsessive mind. Uh, and so I decided instead to become a lawyer.
0: mm mm-hmm. And so, did you get admitted to practice in the ACT?
1: And straight away in New South Wales as well. And okay. then moved after Legal Workshop, which is the equivalent of College of Law, um, to Sydney and worked in what was then the Deputy Crown Solicitor's Office, Commonwealth um, Deputy
0: Crown Solicitor's Office. Is that the equivalent of the Commonwealth DPP today?
1: Now, yes. Um, There was no DPP then. Mm. Um, I I was put fairly quickly into the criminal prosecution section that had about 13, 14 lawyers in Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I um, started to get a feel for the criminal law. Mm. And once I had done that for about one and a half years... Um, I decided, um, I'd like to go into private practice and, um, after a, a little while working in a, working night shift in a plastic factory, um, uh, when I was working out what to do, decided I'd like to go to the bar. So first of all, I went to Australian Legal Aid Office, the, the then Commonwealth Australian Legal Aid Office, um, and to So was that doing defence work? Yep. Yep. And then, and then, um, got admitted to the bar. Mm. Um, and my first chambers were fourteenth floor Woodell Chambers in the old Prudential Building, which has just been torn down, and, um, and a new building is going up in Martin Place in its place.
0: Mm. And so, when you started out, did you know any lawyers?
1: No, um, I didn't really. Um, I had a very good friend at ANU, um, John Terry, who um, had the same uh, interests and wanted to eventually go to the bar. I remember once we came down from Canberra one weekend um, and sat in the back of um, one of the old equity judges' courts and watched what was happening and then sort of turned to each other and said, I can do that. (laughs) <laughs> uh, and uh, he went into the Aboriginal Legal Service yes. and uh, was based in Wilcannia and I went to Deputy Crown Solicitor's Office but uh, I went and took a week of leave while I was at um, doing prosecutions at um, Deputy Crown Solicitors and joined John and helped him with the list
0: in And Will Right. And
1: it was an absolute eye-opener, of course. Absolutely.
0: I've done um, that list many times.
1: Uh, and you know, there was a, a stage at which uh, we got this, or at least I got this, encouraging phone call from a man called Steve Norrish. Yes. Um, who was then a senior solicitor at um, the Aboriginal Legal Service. And uh, uh, so, yeah, it... it it, it gave me a bit of an inkling as to what was going on and um, when I went to the bar, I then uh, sorry, I did sort of five and a half minutes worth of work for the Aboriginal Legal Service as a solicitor yes. UK, um and did West New South Wales and um, then when I went to the bar I got hired by the Western Aboriginal Legal Service to do trial work, particularly in Bourke okay. um, but work generally in the northwest of New South Wales. It wasn't a mainstay of my practice, but there was a fair bit of it. And so I got an introduction to um, all the wonderful mad people who worked for the Western Aboriginal Legal Service, um, the lovely Dina Yahya um, at that stage, was a solicitor there, um, and uh, a whole heap of, of really great people. Uh, and... Yeah, I learnt a lot of my criminal law on the ground. Mm. Um, One of my regrets, and it was a regret I had at the time, was that I did not have a master barrister who was a criminal lawyer, really. Mm -hmm. I had a master barrister, but um, he was much more of a common lawyer Mm -hmm. and he didn't do crime all that much. And I should have hung around him more um, to learn a bit more about... Uh, doing civil work but I didn't I, you know, I amused myself um, collecting evidence for the anti-uranium movement over the um, public relations campaign that was being run by uranium miners like Western Mining and, and others uh, to try and shut it down under the Trade Practices Act as misleading and deceptive mm. and it did put a stop to it um, um, but, uh, I spent too much time doing that sort of, um, you would call it now pro bono, but basically unpaid yes. work that interested me.
0: Yes. Uh. Would you call yourself an activist lawyer? Um, well,
1: I don't know whether I would have been, but in retrospect, I suppose I was, um, I uh, did a lot of work for the gay and lesbian community mm. and uh, for the AIDS Council with the, with people in the AIDS Council and the like, and all of it was unpaid and all of it was because I thought, oh, well, there's a need here. Yes. Uh, and um, a crying need because it requires a bit of lateral thinking and a bit of an understanding of where the community concerned is trying to go and why. Mm. Um, And there aren't many other lawyers doing that sort of work. And, you know, I I like doing that sort of work. Uh, And, um, yeah, um, yeah, I suppose it was.
0: Mm. So, I've heard a story about climbing over the fence at central local court is this
1: i don't remember climbing over a fence i did i i did um on the night of mardi gras get a call at home i had been to the demo the morning before um with um what was then called gay solidarity group um
0: and this is 1978
1: we're talking about june 1978 and i didn't go to the planned mardi gras because i thought it was too frivolous <laughs> I, I know. It, it says something about my character at the time, which isn't good, I don't think. Right. Uh, but Do you anyway. Regret not
0: being there as a, as a reveller.
1: Uh,
0: well, as I, a don't, I, don't like,
1: I don't like getting involved in physical violence, so I probably wouldn't I would have been quite
0: put off by that. The threat of yeah. being in a dangerous situation yes. like that. Yeah. Um, did, did it feel unsafe in those times? To uh, be
1: Yes, absolutely, yes. as far as the cops were concerned. Yes. Absolutely. But I got this call that night saying, oh, look, um, lots and lots of people have been arrested up at the cross, at the Mardi Gras. Um, the women have been taken to um, Central Police Station. Um, the guys have been taken to Darlinghurst Police Station. Um, Virginia Bell's doing uh, the guys... At Darlinghurst, can you go and do the women at Central? Mm. So I then put on my bailing out hat. And that sounds like a person who pulls money out of their pocket <laughs> and gives it to the police so that people can be bailed out. But I wasn't doing any of that sort of, any any money handling at all. It was a case of managing the cops, you know, um... Because were the cops trying to stop
0: people from being represented or being able to make bail applications?
1: It, it, they, needed the, they needed the people to be bailed out because they were, they were occupying all the cells. Uh. And people needed to be bailed out and their friends were outside um, wanting them to be bailed out and it needed a bit of work with the cops and a criminal lawyer, as Virginia was as well. Um, she was then principal solicitor at the uh, Redfern Legal Centre Yes. Um, were used to dealing with cops and so I think that's how we fell into that sort of thing and I ended up doing it for quite a few demonstrations.
0: Yes, yes. Mm. And that type of lawyering still goes on um, in the aftermath of protests for sure.
1: I'm quite sure it would have to. Yes. That's right. You need someone who's... um, working with the people who are outside on half of the people who are in the cells, but with the cops to get them all out safe and sound.
0: Yeah. Thinking back to those early times as a lawyer, I mean, 1978, you'd only been at the bar about a year. Mm.
2: Uh,
0: your times out west, doing those early trials mm. for the ALS, for, wall, for the, then WALS, mm. um, were there... Some influences on you or some important lessons that then kind of laid the foundation for your career in the decades following, or is that is it hard to pass through
1: it's hard to disentangle mm. um, individual strands in the overall experience i think i mean obviously I learned things from the older solicitors like Bruce Miles and Steve um, um, Norrish Norrish uh, but uh, a lot of it you're on your own and mm. you can talk to other people about it. Mm. Martin Sides um, was um, up there at the time out west um, He went on to become a district court judge um, along with uh, Steve Norrish. Um, And, you know, I obviously absorbed stuff Mm. from those guys, but I also learnt from my own mistakes. You know, I had occasion to lose my temper. That was a bad thing. And I know it was a bad with thing. With the bench because or with your with or bench. With yes. yeah. And with the cops, because it's counterproductive. Yes. It means you're not anything like as productive as you would be if you stayed on an even keel. Yes. And but
0: it's frustrating, isn't it? It
1: is. Um, and so, yeah, I, uh, you learn lessons like that. Yes. Um, unfortunately, it, it took a little while, <laughs> in my case, to, to learn the lessons. Yes. Um, but, um, yeah, I would absolutely uh, suggest to young lawyers, um, you know, stay on an even keel. Um, one of the things that I didn't realise until I'd been doing my, legal, my, my criminal work for some while was what the judges are looking for. Um, I wasn't taught that. At legal workshop then, and you know how there's this expression um, after you've made your submissions. um, Thank you for your assistance, Ms. Graham. Mm. Um, The judges usually mean that. What they are looking for is assistance from your client's point of view Mm. in dealing with what it is that they have to deal with controversy at play in sorting out um the evidence um what's important what's unimportant how it should be viewed how it should all be put together what conclusions should be drawn you know uh, is there a reasonable basis for the conclusions that you're urging if so what is that and uh if there's a, one regret I have, it's that I didn't know at an early stage, didn't appreciate at an early stage, the need to um, ensure that the judge feels they're getting your assistance in um, determining the questions before them.
2: Mm. Yeah.
1: Um, so that's that's one little example. And, and, you know, I do regret not having had a... A good um, uh, criminal barrister as um, a mentor, um, which I didn't really until moving ultimately to Forbes Chambers um, in this very building, uh, mm. and where I, I eked out my my years as a barrister. And there, there were and still are many very good. Senior and junior barristers, you mm. know, and I um, had learned from juniors mm. plenty of times mm. um, that uh, not so much points of law but how to better approach a problem solving uh, exercise. Mm, mm,
0: mm. So I've had the pleasure of being one of your juniors, um, and your work ethic is just, you know, through the roof. It's, it's something really to behold well but I think
1: you know you can't there's no point in being in the business unless you're prepared to throw yourself into the case and do the work that needs to be done it might not need a whole stack of of uh, pulling material together and analysis and distilling you know the Mm -hmm. vital points and working out how to present them Mm -hmm. Um, but often that does involve uh, in really intense concentration mm. and assembly of the material mm. and understanding the material you've got mm. and working out the best way of moving forward mm. in a case.
0: Oh, There's absolutely no substitute for just really hard work That's in right. this game. But... And,
1: I, and I'm, I, I've always had the shits with the fact that there was and I think still is a portion of the criminal bar who don't really care Mm. Um, and just go in and um, be seen to do a job and go home again Mm. Um, and I, I think that's disappointing.
0: Dangerous even, I think.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. But what I wanted to sort of ask off the back of that is, I mean, this job inevitably involves really hard work it involves high stress, particularly in criminal law. How do you, how have you managed to stay sort of level headed, sane, a kind person? Um, how, how have you looked after yourself throughout your career to, to have that longevity and that success over such a long time?
1: Well, um, probably two things. Um, I don't hang around with lawyers much. Uh, that's not one of the things, but I just want to put that to one side.
0: Mm. Other As people in you do. have another life.
1: Other people do. That's fine, um, but I tend not to. I have tended to um, hang out with my gay friends, working in the gay community, all of which can often be um, a long way removed mm. from your legal work. Mm. There has been overlap. Yes. In, in quite a few respects. Um, but um, it's been good to, you know, go to dance parties and be a member of a party working group at the AIDS Council. And, uh, but lots of other policy-oriented uh, activism as well. Mm-hmm. The other thing is that I would really urge, and I say this to young lawyers... Don't forget your body. Um, I wish I had, you know, gone to the sports union at, at uni and regularly exercised. I didn't discover um, regular exercise until the um, mid-40s, mm-hmm. uh, which I think was a bit of a shame in retrospect. I wish I had. Um, but you need to be, s- stay, you know, your body won't stay Whole and functioning as well as it does, unless you look after it a bit. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, get your physical exercise. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And what about looking after your mental health?
1: Um, Do you have
0: any particular strategies?
1: I don't think I'm very good at um, trying to put the legal problems into a little box when I'm going to sleep and saying, well, that's over there and I'm not going to think about that now. And in the old days, I used to, you know, keep pen and pen by my bed and when I had a thought, I'd turn on the light and put it on paper. Um, uh, but that's not good. It's, uh, it's good if you can learn mindfulness and uh, try to keep your legal work uh, and court work as separate as you can from the rest of your life, and have another rest of your life. Yes, you know, do other things as far as you can.
0: Yes, all good tips. So let's let's talk about the Croatian Six then.
1: Oh yeah, shall
0: we? Yep. We're talking about a time, late seventies trials in the early eighties. This is the time of Roger Rogerson. This is the time that. Um, there's issues much more so with police misconduct, verbals fabricating, planting evidence all these types of issues are going on, Um, there's even an acknowledgement that it's part of the culture, these types of things part of the police culture that is in New South Wales so insert a six accused trial you've just got one client at that time
1: Oh, I had one client at the time, that's right.
0: And what's what's your case theory? Uh, <coughs> well, maybe we should start with what, well, what's the charge? What's the, the,
1: the charges are conspiracy to uh, cause um, damage to property and injury to people by setting off explosions, possess explosives, conspiracy to murder. Mm-hmm. Um, the jury actually acquitted us of the conspiracy to murder and so that can for most purposes, be put to one side. Not all yes. purposes, but most purposes be put to one side. But they were convicted of um, basically terrorism-related conspiracies. There, This was when the Yugoslav government under Joseph Tito ruled the countries that are now, you know, Serbia, Bosnia-Herzegovina, Slovenia, um, Croatia um, and... Uh, there was an active Yugoslav intelligence service. They were active in foreign countries where there were uh, communities of Croatian emigres. Mm-hmm. And uh, Croatian was emigres. Then. Croatian emigres. Australia was absolutely one of them. Croatian emigres here um, were uh, activists in. Uh, arguing for Croatian independence and for the downfall of the Yugoslav government. Uh, And as a result, like in other countries, um, Yugoslav intelligence service agents came around sorting people out, and they did it by murdering people, assassinating them. Quite a few people around the world, particularly in Europe and in North America, um, and also in Australia. Now, there were um, definitely uh, activists Croatians who intended to try to set um, places like Croatia free because um, a small bunch of them went over to Croatia, uh, went over to Yugoslavia, and all got killed. Um, you know, they'd gone and um, got training, military, quasi-military training, and gone over to Yugoslavia. Um, there... Uh, the, the people who were arrested in our case um, were arrested in two places, Sydney and Lithgow. Mm. Um, in Lithgow, there were these two men. One was called Vico Verkes and the other was Maxim Bevich. Um, Vico Verkes uh, turned out to be, and we suspected at the time but couldn't prove it, um, a Yugoslav intelligence service agent.
0: Is he the one that walked into Lithgow Police Station and said, I'm about to blow up these locations in Sydney and the Lithgow Police...
1: That's exactly right. Oh. That's right. That's exactly right. And so that day, the um, um, police responded, the special branch and the armed hold-up squad and special breaking squads at CIB responded by getting together um, a team that went to Lithgow. They raided this house. They found explosives in Verquez's car. They say. Set up to be... No, no, definitely were. Okay. Definitely were. Um, Set up with um, um, uh, timers and detonators and, and what have you. And we know because the army was called in and they handled the explosives mm-hmm. um, and advised on how they should be handled. And photography photographer was brought in and photographs were taken of it all. Um, and at the same time, poor old Mac- Max Bebic was arrested. He was house mate at the time. He wasn't really... He was a Croatian... He, he believed in Croatian independence, but he wasn't an activist in, mm-hmm. in the sense that any of the guys in Sydney were... of attending demonstrations. The people in Sydney... Two of them were identified by Verkez to the New South Wales Police, but the other three were not at all. Um, but the thing they all had in common was that they were what I call second-generation immigrants. They weren't... Although um, a couple of them had been... Um, uh, a number of them had been born in Croatia, um, they were younger than the um, elders in the community... The elders in the community tended to work with the police um, quite a bit, and indeed, the charge of um, conspiracy to murder was said to be a conspiracy to murder them, two of the elders of the community. Mm. Um, but the younger ones had been you know, taking part in demonstrations, tying up the police, um, uh, running onto football fields with burning Yugoslav flags that sort of thing. You know, a sort of um, springbok demonstration mm-hmm. type of activities. And um, they certainly tied up a lot of police. The, uh, the group of police that set out in Sydney that night was briefed by special branch. And they went to three, four different residences and they said that they found small amounts of explosives, much, much smaller than were found in uh, Lithgow. Uh, And they arrested the men who had been identified and brought them in and um, said that each of the men had been in possession of these small amounts of explosives and then proceeded to make verbal admissions, which were recorded, the police said, in various ways, but not in a way that was um, independently corroborated. Mm. Um,
0: This is pre-electronically recorded? Absolutely.
1: Unsigned records of interview, unsigned notebook verbals. Uh, And the police who alleged this, all each came from the heavy squads at CIB, whom uh, were later identified by Justice Wood in the Police Royal Commission in the mid-90s as um, being a hotbed of evidence fabrication. Uh, the They were all charged and then um, ended up on trial. trial started in April 1980 and Vico Verquez um, was a witness. Mm. We didn't get very far with him. Mm-hmm. It was very difficult to. My clients thought he was a Yugoslav intelligence Service agent, but had nothing to go on apart from a gut feeling, really. We had very little to go on. Um, But we subpoenaed ASIO, Special Branch, New South Wales Police, Department of Immigration to produce what they had on Vircaires, and they all claimed um, public immunity, public Mm. interest immunity, privilege, and the judge upheld those claims. Mm. We now know what was in the documents in respect of which privilege was claimed because in um, uh, about three or four years ago, the ASIO files concerned were declassified almost entirely and hey presto, Vico Verquez was a Yugoslav intelligence service agent, the government knew this, the police knew this. Indeed, the assistant commissioner of police at the time of the trial had said, we must conceal this it mustn't see the light of day because if it did, it would, quote, blow a hole through the police case, unquote. Um, Disclosure was approached in a somewhat different way in that era.
0: Well, I don't know about that. (laughs) Disclosure is, I think, the biggest problem in our criminal justice system at the moment. Um, It really plagues it. But that's another whole topic. Uh, um, you've only been at the bar three or so years um. by the time of this trial. It's the first sort of big terrorism trial mm. in Australia. It's the longest running trial at the time that it runs in Australia. How did you get the brief?
1: Um, via a solicitor, sorry, via a barrister that I was using um, uh, to teach me, the hard approached to, to teach me um, working in the criminal courts. Um, and he got me into it. He wasn't a very good barrister, Mm -hmm. unfortunately, Um, and he didn't actually hack the trial. He dropped out halfway through, Mm -hmm. and someone else had to take over. Um, He had the shits with the fact that we were... Issuing these subpoenas and taking a long time. The matter was on legal aid, of course. Mm -hmm. And legal aid was a disaster um, in terms of the amount of fees. Yes. Um, And it, it, you know, I I didn't have complete support. I had a lot of support, but not complete support from the Mm -hmm. other barristers Mm -hmm. for pursuing the true story behind the guy who said he was an informer. Um, then in 1991, Chris Masters, um, did a program called Cloak and Dagger on Four Corners mm. and he went and found Verkes in, uh, Bosnia and Verkers says, yes, no, I, no, I wasn't a Croat. Um, uh, I, um, told lies. Um, I got the lies from the statements the police gave me and the police, forced me to say those things. Um, as far as I know, the other guys are all innocent.
0: And at that time, it, is your client still in jail? I don't know. Okay.
1: Uh, I actually Eight. don't know. They were sentenced to 15, 15 years. years. So, uh, And I believe they served about 10 years because they had remissions in those days. Yes. Um,
0: Getting out a licence or something like that. Yes. Yes. Yes.
1: Um, but uh, just as the Court of Criminal Appeal had not been interested in the fact that Verkez was or might be a Yugoslav intelligence service agent, so too the uh, authorities to whom we sent applications for a post-conviction inquiry weren't interested. The Court of Criminal Appeals line was, but there's two other legs to the case. There's the confessions, the evidence mm-hmm. of the confessions and the evidence of the explosives found Mm. at everyone's houses. Um, That's quite enough for the jury to have acted Mm. on. uh, And the authorities took the same approach Mm. until recently with the declassification of the OCO files.
0: And perhaps some, maybe with some more distance from it, some greater acceptance of the practices of the police at the time in terms of fabricated confessions and... Yeah, we
1: did put in an application in 2012 which built on the Wood Royal Commission report. Yes. Um, and what was known about that, but uh, it didn't get up. Mm. Uh, the uh, The big thing we had going against us was, and and the judge you referred to it in the summing up, is basically the defence case is the 37... Police conspired to perjure themselves. Mm. Now, I mean, I I have a problem with that as a direction to the jury myself, but leaving that aside, that was, you know, the thought processes that would have been going through any normal jury person's mind. Mm. Uh, Because no one understood, let alone accepted, that um, systematic. Uh, fabrication of evidence had been going on for a long time, a long time, decades and decades... Yes. ..in the New South Wales Police Force. And it was a culture. Yes. And until 1991, there was no... There was very little um, evidence of that. Roger Rogerson, though, went to the media in 1991. Quite why, I've never understood. But went to the media two different journalists and said, oh, we have a, a culture of fabricating yes. evidence and this is how we do it. And we give people half sticks of gel ignite and a few detonators and we um, give them um, unsigned records of interview and uh, it's par for the course. Uh, you know, the old, the old ones teach the young ones how to do it. Mm,
2: mm.
0: Yeah, extraordinary. So... Now, 2023. There's an. Inc- there is a conviction inquiry going on. Mm. Three petitioners.
1: Three petitions, and the judge who ordered the inquiry ordered respect of all accused. So mm-hmm. also, the ones who don't want to have anything to do with the inquiry. The, the, the inquiry still is still into there. Yes, court. and if, if I'm, I imagine that if. I am called on to make submission as to what should happen in respect of the convictions of the other three, I would say exactly the same mm. as should be done with convictions of my clients. Yes. There's no there's no real difference. And I'm acting for the one arrested in Lithgow, whom from whom I
0: can The housemate. to a limited extent.
1: Yeah, the housemate. Yes. Who, to a limited extent I can get instructions from is getting he's, on. Yes. Uh And so he's the most difficult because uh, he uh, was there where the explosives were found and then the next day after their arrest took the police, they said, to three different places in the bush around Lithgow and said, oh, here's some more explosives, here's a place where we stored the explosives, here's a place where we experimented with the explosives Mm -hmm. and timers. Mm -hmm. Um, So his is the most difficult case. But I... In going through it, um, it's I'm I'm, uh, quite satisfied that it will be um, uh, possible to uh, show how the court should view the conviction in his case, which is that it too is unsafe.
0: Mm, mm, mm. And then one of your clients has passed away.
1: That's right. Yes, he. A lovely guy. I didn't. He's not one of the ones I acted for in the trial. Uh, he passed away in Croatia late last year after the inquiry had been ordered. Uh, my instructions are that he's made it very clear that he wanted the inquiry to go ahead in his name. Uh, he had been actively involved in the preceding applications, mm. about six of them or so, mm. over the years since 1981, or 1982, when. Mm the uh, Court of Criminal Appeal case 1985 when the special leave application the High Court was heard, mm. um, And he instructed his wife, and she's his legal personal representative and so she's saying, yeah, go ahead. Mm-hmm. So we act for a dead man. Yep. That's true.
0: Yes. Which you can do. Which you can because do because the question assets. is
1: the convictions. Mm. It's not the individuals, it's their convictions that are an issue.
0: Yes. So... This this case has spanned mm. almost your entire career. Mm. Um,
1: Many of the potential witnesses of the inquiry are dead. Yes. Most of the cops, I haven't found yet that any of them, except Roger Rogerson, are still alive.
0: Is he going to be called? I don't
1: know. It's up to counsel assisting.
0: Mm, interesting. So... Just reflecting, kind of, on how our system works, and I mean, you had a feeling back when you were running the trial that this was a setup. Absolutely. And I knew
1: enough about verbals and the history of police fabrication of evidence in nineteen seventy nine to understand my client's instructions when he said that no, nothing like nothing of the sort happened. But as well, there are forensic indicators to which we'll be drawing the inquirer's attention, of course, in the verbals themselves.
0: Sure, sure. I'm just interested in your reflections on how this case um, reveals frailties in our system. Um, because... It seemed as though there were markers back in 1979, 1981 mm. when the trial was going on. Mm. Later markers when appeal processes were being um, pursued. And here we are, so, so many years later, still trying to see whether perhaps justice can be done.
1: Um, I would hope that there isn't as... A vigorous a culture of fabrication of evidence in law enforcement agencies in Australia today, that it's not simply par for the course in uh, Australia. Of course, we now have uniform laws introduced in the mid 80s uh, for uh, effectively compulsory uh, electronic recording of interrogation of suspects. Um, and I certainly appreciate that there is wiggle room for, uh, police wishing to fabricate evidence on either side of the occasions where the law says it's compulsory. Um, but that does dramatically reduce the scope for evidence fabrication, um, And uh, you can see it in the case law. There's not anything like the pursuit of alleged um, confessions um, by defendants and accused as there was. It was a whole industry Mm. in the uh, late 70s and early 80s. When I retired last year, I had up in my chambers a... Uh, three very large volumes, lever arch folders, tabbed, tabbed up, everything ordered, um, called Confessions. Three volumes of case law. It was such an industry mm. um, because that's what you had to be across. Those were your tools, the, the decisions on Confessions. Mm. For the void Yes, exactly. Mm. And indeed, that's that was one of the things John Terry and my mate who had gone off to... Uh, the Aboriginal Legal Service in More Kenya uh, and I did. We prepared a paper for the criminal and justice system conference in 1981 um, on voir dire, mm. voir dire, um, because we thought people needed to know, have the tools to work with mm. when underca- underta- undertaking these challenges. Um, I remember going to the conference and, and that the um, the plenary, Lionel Murphy, gave a, a speech and he deprecated our paper for being too black-letter. He, he liked the policy stuff, of which there was a lot and for which I'm now immensely grateful because I'm drawing on it to provide to council assisting uh, in the hope it'll be taken on board by the inquiry about the extent of and the complexities of and the nature of um, police fabrication of evidence mm, in those yeah, days, yeah, yeah. but i it, the thing I pursued it because i I had a real uh, being a Bonnet is the wrong term because it sort of I, I had an obsession about the uh, travesty of justice the the miscarriage of justice that was occurring on a mass scale mm. uh, and that law enforcement was um, engaging in it and that to a large extent the judiciary were doing nothing about it mm. um, there were wonderful exceptions but you can count them the fingers of one hand uh, and uh, that was one of the reasons that i continued to pursue it all that time that particular case and like Cases of of uh, perversion of the course of justice. Mm. Um, you know, what if you're a barrister? What are you about if you're going to tolerate that rather than just earn an income from it? I don't want to sound hoity-toity about it, but um, uh, there, and because there were plenty of good solicitors and good barristers who fought the good fight on this, I can assure you.
0: Mm. And, and some today. of them are judges today. Some are, yeah. Mm. Mm. Um, are, are there any other cases that you look back on as a real career highlight for you?
1: Um, I t- morphed my practice from doing what I call sex and drugs and rock and roll in the era when I was doing work for walls. Um, uh, to uh, regulatory crime, by which I mean, in my case, environmental uh, crime and occupational health and safety crime. Um, But regulatory crime is a very large um, bowl that has in it uh, uh, all the criminal offences that are created in statutes that regulate industry by and large, Mm. um, and regulate the protection of the environment. Uh, I got into it because I was asked to do a pesticides prosecution. Uh, And then I ended up in the last 20 years or so of uh, my practice doing a lot of work for the Environment Protection Authority of New South Wales, and... The starting case there was a humdinger. Uh, the This uh, caravan park owner up at Karua uh, in the central coast of New South Wales uh, decided that he didn't want to have to pay for uh, sewage to be uh, trucked out every week. Um, and so he arranged for the plumbing of the sewage in his caravan park to be um, diverted to the estuary of the Karua River. And there was a valve that every evening he would go and turn so that um, the contents of the sewage system would be disposed of to the river, um, rather than to the tanks. And uh, so his bill for trucking out um, sewage from the tanks um, Plummeted and um, well, yeah, the river got an awful lot of um, human waste deposited into it over a fair while. Um, And eventually uh, the EPA found out that was the day when they had um, uh, serious investigators who were like cops and uh, they went and dug it up, dug up the sewer, the, the plumbing. Um, And literally, you know, disconnected it from the um, toilet blocks and um, put it on the back of trucks and brought it back down to Sydney and it became an exhibit. Um, And uh, so, yes, he was given a year's jail, Mm. uh, the first and I think the only environmental offender to have ever served. Received custody. Yes received mm. um, full time custody. Mm. Um, the occasional contemnor receives a, a, a suspended sentence you know, uh, on the condition that they go and remedy um, uh, whatever it is they've failed to do um, but uh, uh, yeah there's, there's that was a sort of cut and dried black and white easily understood case. Um, There's all sorts of different types of environmental uh, criminal law. Mm. Um, Water cases are really difficult. The water legislation in New South Wales, I don't know about other states, is really complex and uh, not much of it has been the subject of uh, judicial explanation. Uh, And Getting involved in that sort of work was always interesting. Mm. Um, uh, Prosecution and defence, I hasten to add. Um, A big lesson I would always teach people if they were open to it is you should do both defence work and prosecution work. And people... Uh, I think good criminal lawyers say this Mm. about all crime, not just regulatory crime, that you are a better lawyer of what you do, be it prosecution or defence work, if you spend a fair slab of time at some stage, even if it's only an isolated six months or something, doing work for the other side. Mm. I agree. Because you learn so much. You do. You learn an awful lot, probably more than you would. Uh, just by spending six months, another six months, doing whatever it is you're doing. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I did prosecution and defence work, but an awful lot of work for the EPA. Mm. And it was always interesting. I, I wasn't good at science at school, but I liked getting into sort of koalas and birds and marine and tacks, biology. Yeah. River flow. Yes, yeah. Uh, And learning things and uh, actually consulting science texts and dictionaries uh, to uh, inform myself about the science of what it is that I'm doing. Mm. And I didn't always get it right, but at least it was interesting. Yes. Um, And so, you know, I've got a lot I I certainly commend practicing in environmental crime. Um, I did a lot of uh, I did probably as much prosecution as defense work, but a lot of defense work in occupational health and safety crime uh, and that involves learning about industries and chemical processes and mechanical processes and challenges my uh, uh, inability to do maths i 've got it 's a terrible block i 've had all my life. Um, but it's, it's good, interesting work and I can commend it to people who are um, sort of either jaded with doing police work or um, looking for something different to do, but still do crime. Because you need your crime, you need your good... You need your criminal law principles. You absolutely need your evidence law back to front. Um, you need to know how to run a criminal case, how to organise... The material, how to present it to the court, um, because without that, you're no good as a regulatory criminal lawyer.
0: Mm. Well, we've covered a lot of ground, David. Um, thank you so much for coming in, and uh, we look forward to putting this episode out on the weeks very soon.
1: Great, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks, David. listening please like the wigs on facebook at the wigs podcast don't forget to rate and review on itunes this podcast was brought to you by minimal productions produced by jim mittens